welcome back to the fourth episode of Sustainability Talk. This week, uh, we're going to be talking, this week and next week, actually, we're going to be talking about energy, sustainable energy, energy sources, and where we're getting our energy from. And I'm really excited for this week. We're going to start off talking a little bit about some common energy sources. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time digging into hydroelectric energy. Here in North Dakota, we don't really see it a lot. Um, We do have the Missouri River and the Red River here in Grand Forks, but we don't really see hydroelectric energy a lot. We're going to look at a couple case studies. Um, You know, it's known as the cleanest form of energy, but it's gotten a bad rap in some areas where dams have affected the ecosystem and displaced um, the peoples in those areas. Then after that, we're going to have um, a special guest to call in, Alicia Smith. She's 24. She works for Blaze Energy, and that's all I'm going to tell you right now about her. I'll let her explain herself to you guys, but I'm really excited for the show today. So first things first, when we're talking about energy, and we're going to focus next week on coal, natural gas, and wind and solar. Uh, Next week, we actually have another call-in guest. Her name's Courtney Bauer. She's 22, and she used to work as a plant manager at Coal Creek in Underwood, North Dakota, and she now works for an ethanol plant in Minnesota. So she's going to tell us a little bit about those two forms of energy next week. That's why this week we're just going to touch really lightly on that and then get back to it next week and, like I said, focus on hydroelectric energy and... um, the case studies that I've outlined for you guys today. So to start you off, like energy, our energy sources, we use it to to heat our homes here in Grand Forks. Obviously, that's a a big reason why we have energy. And obviously, you know, we need energy to do things. You need energy. And our most common way of using energy is, is oil. Now, obviously, when we talk about sustainability, we know we don't have an unlimited amount of fossil fuels out there. It's a non-renewable resource. Well, it actually is renewable, but it's renewable over the course of a billion years. So never in our human lifetime would we see fossil fuels renew. And so we have to be looking for alternative energy sources to complement our use of fossil fuels. Now, burning fossil fuels isn't inherently bad. It's how we get energy and it's how we've been doing it for hundreds of years now. It's been tried and true and it's been really efficient. But it's the factors that that are outside of that that we need to consider. And that's why I'm really excited to have Alicia today because she um, works for Blaze Energy, like I said. It's a flaring solutions company, so all they do is focus on emissions control. What are they losing when they're burning their stock? Uh, How are they capturing that? How are they reusing it? And how are they helping keep greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere? And like I said, that's all I'm going to give you for that right now because she's going to tell us a little bit more. Wind and solar, like I said, next week we're going to touch on that. But for now, we're going to jump right into hydroelectric energy. So like I told you guys, it's known as one of the cleanest forms of energy that you could use. It harnesses the power of falling water, the force of pushing the water from one side of a reservoir to another, harnessing that energy and using it for everyday needs, right? It seems like a win-win, you know, using water, not burning fossil fuels, not contributing to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. However, some of these large-scale dam projects have 
a negative impact on the surrounding communities and the ecosystems around them. You know, the first one that I'm going to talk to you guys about uh, is this Washington Post article. It's entitled, Why More Than 200 New Dams Will Be a Disaster for the Amazon. It's written by Chelsea Harvey. It was published on the Washington Post in March of 2016. It's a couple years old, but it's still fairly relevant. It says here that there's already 191 dams that dot the Amazon basin, and there's nearly 250 more planned for the future. However, because of this, scientists say that the region's unique freshwater ecosystems are at risk. Major changes will be required for the Amazonian nations to prevent further damage to the most biologically diverse area of the planet. Hydropower is a favored energy source in the Amazon. It's largely considered the most reliable and price competitive option for people around, and about 80% of the electricity generated in the country is from hydroelectric plants. When you think about that and how that kind of plays into North Dakota, how we feel about oil and how much of our energy comes from oil that's a part of who we are. However, the Amazon is this amazing, amazing addition to our biosphere. It, um, an interesting fact, it actually creates its own weather. It's so massive that it has its own atmospheric system and pressure sequences and systems and it's just so amazing. And the Amazon is home to hundreds of thousands of species, some that we haven't even discovered yet. And so in this article, uh, it, it focuses on Alexander Lees. He's the lead author of this report about the uh, impact of dams on Amazonian biodiversity. His report is saying that we are not sure the impact that will be caused by dams being put in the Amazon. We just know that it's going to be negative because it's going to affect thousands, like I said, hundreds of thousands of plants and animal species that are unique, that have their own purpose, that operate within this system, almost this, this big, you know, biosphere in a way. So the aquatic ecosystems are at most harm here. Essentially, dams are placed at river's headwaters, as close to the river source as possible. And when you do that, you create a basin, create a dam, it halts the water flow um, further down, and it allows for silt and sediment buildup, and it alters all the habitats from high to low. It's kind of like a domino system, you know, you knock one over at the beginning, and it is a continuous stream of tears, knocking into tears, and being affected by the one before it. And this is a huge deal when it comes to um, doing dams in the Amazon. Another um, animal that's harmed in that is flying animals like birds and bats. So it doesn't really make sense. You think, well, yeah, obviously, animals that live in the water there are going to be most affected. But apparently, uh, you know, when you create dams, you disrupt the natural cycle of rising and falling water levels due to wet and dry seasons. And during the dry season, the water will fall and it'll expose rocky islands, which actually end up being really important habitats to many animals. And this is where we're talking about here, flying animals like birds and bats. So they use these rocky areas as breeding grounds and damming them floods these waters indefinitely. And instead of having seasonal changes, you're keeping it the same year round and it's forcing these animals either to move to different locations or it's, or it's killing them because they're not able to reproduce. 
And last of all, um, the, the third reason that Alexander Lees gives here is that dams harm people and communities. And this next case study I have for you guys goes more into that as well. But a lot of the time when you create a dam, the overlying effects are that you have to relocate the people who are living in those areas. Those people in those areas um, aren't necessarily rehabilitated. There aren't ne they aren't necessarily given money or help or aid. They're just asked to move from where they are. And a lot of these people are either poor or indigenous. And so they're really being discriminated here in a way because we're really only putting thinking for city planning, we're putting these dams in efficient areas at riverheads, but that's also where um, less developed, I want to say less urbanly developed indigenous people live, and it's affecting, you know, where they, where they choose to live, and they're being forced to move, or they're or their homes are just being flooded. And the thing with this is that y there has to be trade-offs, but we also have to look into how to maximize these functions of these hydroelectric dams and how we can save the ecosystem surrounding it. It hasn't been approached yet. No one's really had the next big idea when it comes to it, but those are just some of the downsides to the ecosystem when it comes to damming. And like I said, um, this other article that I have here for you guys is entitled Going Under Indigenous Peoples and the Struggle Against Large Dams. And this was published in the Cultural Survival Quarterly Magazine. The author is going to be William Fisher. And he writes a little bit about damming in areas of India and China. And it's a little bit outdated in 1999. So we've increased our dams and our population quite a bit since then. Um, but it still addresses a lot of the human problems that we have when we dam areas. So in 1999, a conservative estimate of the number of people displaced by dams in the last 50 years, so from 1949 to 1999, was 50 to 60 million people. And just imagine what that might be now, now that we've had almost 20 years of advancement since that time. And this talks a little bit more about um, some damming in India, uh, where 20 million people were displaced from 1949 to 1999, and it was estimated that as many as 75% of those people weren't re weren't rehabilitated, meaning that they weren't compensated, they weren't helped, they weren't aided, they were asked to be re relocated, they were pushed out of their homes, and nothing, and that was it. That was the end of it for them. And according to the Indian government estimates, 40% of those people who had been displaced by dams were Adivasis, which um, was 6% or less of the Indian population. It's a minority population in India. So that's what we're talking about there in talking about indigenous. We're talking about minority. We're talking about some of the disparate groups that are being marginalized here in favor of these large-scale operations. So essentially you know, it kind of puts you in a weird position. You want to support hydroelectricity and you want to think that that's helping the environment, but when you look at it sustainably, yes, it is a clean energy source, but how is it affecting the people around? How is it affecting our economy? How is it affecting our society? It's not just about our environment. And it, it does affect our environment negatively. Like I said, you know, with the ecosystems, 
every ecosystem, every member of an ecosystem is is precious and they all serve a purpose in that ecosystem. And when you start disrupting it and you start interfering and you forget about the consequences later on down the road, that is where you run into issues of sustainability. And the Amazon rainforest is a big deal. It's very important for the earth and for all of us. And so a lot of that needs to be addressed when we talk about energy sources. And that was my case studies on hydroelectric energy. Next, we're going to move on, you guys. I'm really excited. Like I've already said before, I'm going to have Alicia Smith. She's going to call us up here, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself and her job working at Blaze Energy and her experiences in the energy sector. Okay, I've got Alicia Smith on the phone. Like I said earlier, she works for Blaze Energy. She's going to tell us a little bit about her job, what she does there, what exactly Blaze Energy does. And so I will swing it over to you, Alicia. Welcome to Sustainability Talk. That's the title of my podcast. And uh, first question I want to ask is how long have you been working in the energy sector, in the energy field? almost two years getting there so what originally led you to go in into working with energy was it just like you're interested in the company or that was something you wanted to do school too it was like everyone was going into power plants like that was the big thing Obviously, there are issues with, you know, using oil and coal. We all know that they're fossil fuels and non-renewables. But, you know, another big part of sustainability is, like, do people have jobs? <laughs> it's a super yeah. efficient way to get energy, and it employs a lot of people. And until we have these methods to switch over to that are just as efficient, then, you know, it's not like it doesn't make sense to get people out of it or to stop using it. So what exactly is your job title? What do you do at Blaze Energy? I am an MRU operator, which itself is the mechanical refrigeration unit. Um, so basically, well, first off, what Blaze does as a company, um, since there's not really the pipeline capacity to send all of this extra gas straight to the plants, a lot of companies have been flaring it off. And if you, like, drive out west every day, see all kinds of flares everywhere. Right. Um, so my CO and my COO were just 
decided to take advantage of that and try to capture it. Right, um, and, re- and reuse it instead of wasting it. Yep, so then, like, my job as an operator out here for Blaze is we're right on location, we're right on the pad where after they drill the wells and all that, you get up the either gas, oil, and water. So basically, after the production company on the same location, they'll separate the natural gas from the oil, water, and other downhole fluids. Uh, and then they send it right across the pad over to us where we have on-site um, natural gas compressors. Um, and we're, so that gas is going to go through three stages of compression, and that's going to drop out some of the heavy carbon that you find in natural gas. It's going to be like your octane, decane, stuff like that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like chemistry at all, but basically like the C5s and heavier. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then after that, then it goes to the mechanical refrigeration unit. Um, and then, so let's say it's like a giant AC unit. And so it just like rapidly cools the gas and that's going to drop out, um, like your C3s and C4s, which is like propane, butane, right, stuff some, like that. Some of the heavier yeah. or lighter, heavier? A little bit lighter. Lighter, okay. Lighter than the octane and decane. Okay. Heavier than methane and ethane. Right, okay. So basically, anything we get out from the compressor and the MRU goes down to the production tank, and then the truck will come and it'll take it to the gas plant. So it's already like halfway refined. (laughs) Oh, okay, all right. Wow, that's like a lot of processes. I never even realized that all that went through. (laughs) Right, that's what they're burning and then, off. So it burns, yep, so it burns like way cleaner. There's hardly any emissions with that. Whereas, like before, when they were sending all of this heavier, this heavier gas to the flare, they just flare it all off right away. Right, and, and so all of it, <laughs> yep, all of it exactly. is going out so, instead of any of it being kind of scrubbed or cleaned at all. Right, well, right. I mean, it goes through scrubbers and it'll drop out like the heavier stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's being used. It's not being wasted. The company can say, oh, you know, there's actually, there could be revenue that's coming out of this. For sure, yeah, definitely. So, okay, so that leads me to my next question. You know, oil gets a bad rap, obviously, from especially from environmentalists. Um, I mean, even me, sometimes I say, you know, big oil is evil, but like I said, it employs a lot of people. It's really efficient. We don't really have any other really big, big idea ways to heat our homes, especially when you live in North Dakota and it's like negative 40 degrees three months out of the year. So, anyway, what's, what's kind of your opinion on that? And, I, you know... I don't want to get too controversial or whatever, just, like, surface level. What what do you kind of think about that? Um, what I think about that is, like, yeah, oil gets, like, a terrible rap. Um, but I think a lot of people tend to gravitate towards, like, they'll cling on to, like, old statistics and information. And I feel like there's not a lot of, like, new information being portrayed by the media or articles out there. Um, because, I mean, it is fossil fuel. It's um, you know, it essentially has like a end date to it. 
to it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know we're not going to have it forever, for sure. Right, exactly. And, like, I just kind of feel like there's, and everyone's like, oh, oil companies, like, they're just greedy. They're out there to just, like, take all the oil. They don't care about anything. Mm-hmm. But I feel like being out here, you know, the truth is, like, there's a huge leap towards cleaner energy. And especially, with, like, by oil and fracking companies, even before the EPA increased the restrictions on it. Like, some of the companies I can think of off the top of my head is, like, Exxon, Liberty Frack, and Marathon. They all have, like, like, they're working on it. They got their own labs trying to figure out, like, we're out for Marathon right now. So, that's, like, Marathon's step towards, you know, reducing clearing and all of that good stuff. Right. Um, and the other thing, again, that's what I think, too, is, like, you know, they're seen as greedy, but... I mean, they pay their employees very well. They offer amazing benefits. And some companies are still offering housing. Like, I know One Oak, like, people say if you go work for One Oak, you're pretty much, like, set for life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So they take, yeah. care, take care of their workers. And for sure, and I yeah. mean, it, it makes a lot of money just because of the nature of energy. You know, you have to heat your homes. You have to, you know, for cooking, for literally everything you do, you have to use energy. And oil is how we do it. So, of course, it's going to be... It's going to have a lot of money behind it. And, I mean, yeah, it definitely can lead to some corrupt people. And it can, I mean, some people might not think through the consequences. But, you know, like you said, it's technology is advancing to the point where now we can use it for our advantage. And we're not, you know, just, like, mindlessly burning fossil fuels. And, you know, we can address, like, the environmental issues that we have to deal with as well. So, I mean, that kind of leads me to my next one. We talked about it a little bit, but, um, so, you know, you're in, you know, you do emissions control with Blaze. So, do they do anything to catch and then reuse? Like, do you know what that process is? Um, yes. So, when we, let me see here, as far as capturing vapors, um, we don't have any tanks that vent to the atmosphere. Or so that was kind of something too, like back in the eighties, the oil boom and stuff like that. Second one there, um, you know, a lot of people they weren't really aware of like the vapor return, and that's something we do. We don't have any tanks that vent to the atmosphere. Uh, our tanks, they so like I was telling you, like the <laughs> okay, we. Regain my thought here. <laughs> so the production tanks where we put like the C3 gas and like the the gas that we take out, like which would become the liquefied natural gas, right. we'll vapor up into the gas again. And then what we do is we take that through a vapor return line and we send it back to our compressor engine and our generator that generates electricity for our location there. Uh, and that's just gonna burn a lot cleaner. In the engine, it's going to run a lot better, less emissions on that end, too, kind of like a giant vehicle engine. <laughs> right. Um, burning cleaner gas better, uh, better than, like, the Rawwell head gas coming, like, straight up from production, you know. Okay, yeah. So we'll put that back and reuse it, whereas, like, again, that used to be something that was just, like, flared off or just vented off into the atmosphere and, you know. That's not really allowed anymore, and it's again, it's kind of just like wasting your own source of energy, right? Yeah, there. exactly. Your own, your own stock, your own resources that you're trying to, you know, market and sell to other people. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's pretty cool that you know, it's like a, it's almost like every part of the extraction gets used. You know, you, I mean, a lot to the layman, a lot of people don't understand like that's all the processes, all the stuff you get out of it, and you yeah. know how how they deal with that in the end too. 
Well, yeah. Alicia, I think that about concludes us. I thank you so much for being on my podcast and for telling us a little bit. I learned a lot. I did not know about any any of that stuff, so it was definitely a good a good learning moment. Yeah, and I can only but imagine. Um, it's definitely for the better. Yeah, for sure. I I can only imagine. There's a thing we talk about in my um in my tech tech classes. It's called Moore's law. It says that uh, the computational power of technology will double every 18 months. So that essentially means that, like in 18 months, the phone that I have and I'm, the phone that I'm using to record this all isn't even you know top notch. I think it's like two or three versions back but like say the iphone x in 18 months we'll have a phone that can do twice as much 1.5 times more than the iphone x can do and now just think about how we apply that to our energy sectors and to our private sectors and how technology is just going to be ridiculous and we're like 50 years old it's going to be crazy oh yeah all right well yeah for sure and i mean Okay, well, well, another thing I want, I want to conclude with, too, is that, you know, you know, you touched on it earlier, fossil fuels, we don't have them forever. There's definitely an end date. Um, so when that day comes, if you are still in the energy sector, would you hop on the bandwagon? Would you go work as a, for, like, hydro or wind or solar or somewhere like that, try to do energy some other way? Actually, what I think the future of energy is, other than natural gas, because we've been like that's actually what my company's really focusing on is the future of natural gas because I don't know if you know this, but Schwann's, like the mobile grocery, mm-hmm. they actually run all of their trucks on propane instead of diesel. Okay. Because the Earth's core is already. We require so much heat (laughs) in the winter. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the thing that energy industry has to address. And, you know, being an environmentalist, sustainability, all those things you want to talk about it. Yeah, you can protest oil companies all you want, but you live in Grand Forks, you live in Bismarck, you live in Canada, (laughs) anywhere. uh, (laughs) You know, you can't survive in those areas without excessive energy. And, you know, we've obviously evolved past burning wood which is one of the least effective ways to get energy possible and we've progressed up to this level so i you know we're just going to keep on progressing to the point where you know live life will hopefully be comfortable (laughs) in the future yeah you won't even have to feel a cold outside maybe we could just you know let global warming take its course and and, then it'll be like a a good like 30 degrees all winter long i wouldn't mind that just kidding Just kidding, I take it back. Sustainability podcast, you guys. I do not advocate for that. <laughs> We're just being realistic. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Alicia. I really appreciate being on my podcast, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Not a problem. Yeah, bye. bye. And all right, guys, that is going to wrap it up for this week. 
Remember, next week is going to be part two sustainable energy. We're going to be talking with um, a girlfriend of mine, Courtney Bauer, works at uh, Ethanol Plant now, used to work for a coal plant here in North Dakota. So thanks so much for listening, you guys, and this has been Sustainability Talk.